You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Today's episode kickstarts a trio of podcasts on war and peace reporting. And I've got two guests with me with extensive experience of journalism in conflict zones. Margot Ben is a freelance journalist who's worked for Agence France Presse, France 24, Le Figaro and the New York Times, among other media organisations. Her career has taken her to Sudan, Kenya, the Central African Republic and Cyprus. But for the past four years, she's been living and working in Afghanistan. Norman Ramani comes from Afghanistan, and he's spent much of the last 15 years working for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, first as a linguist, then as a press monitor, and more recently as the IWPR's country director in Afghanistan, managing their extensive work programme there. He's also worked for the NGO Search for Common Ground, a global peacebuilding organisation, again as country director for Afghanistan. Over the last few months, Norman has seen much of what he's worked for come under threat. So we'll be talking about that and about the future of journalism in Afghanistan now that the Taliban are in power. But we'll also be reflecting more generally on the important role that journalism plays in helping people all around the world to visualize the causes, contours and consequences of wars and what journalism can do to promote conflict resolution and peace building. So Margot and Noor, I'm so grateful to you for making time to talk to me today. Thank you very much for coming on the Visualising War podcast and welcome. Hi, Alice. Thanks very much for having me and hi, everyone. Hi, Alice. Thanks for having me. Pleasure being here. Great. So both of you have so much experience of war and peace reporting in Afghanistan specifically. So a lot of our conversation today will revolve around that. But I want to start, if I may, with some bigger questions about journalism in conflict zones more generally. So, Margot, if I can come to you first, it would just be interesting to know what prompted you to take up a career in journalism? And also, did you have in mind from the start that you would end up reporting on conflict or working in conflict zones? I'd known for a very long time that I wanted to go into either journalism or research, academia. And because I, I'm actually a University of St. Andrews alum myself, and so I did a, a double master's in international relations and Italian. And so during my studies, I, I just kept focusing on conflict analysis and conflict resolution, a little bit also on corruption and organized crime, which is also why I was learning Italian incidentally. And so I kind of went back and forth. I worked for a little bit for a research NGO, but then in the end, I decided to really go into journalism because I, I realized I just really like telling stories and writing and filming. I'm just very attracted to the freedom that comes with journalism. You can kind of shift between types of media, ways in which you tell the stories, and it's all a little bit more immediate as well. You kind of feel that you're telling things to people. You're kind of either revealing stories or describing ways of living, ways of thinking. And I like to kind of think about, you know, the people who will be reading my articles or, or seeing my documentaries as I make them. And it's interesting that you pick up on this idea of telling stories. And that's what the Visualizing War Project is really interested in, how stories about conflict work, but also what they do to us. So and obviously you're thinking a lot about that with thinking about your audiences. 
I wonder if you think that journalism has changed a lot since you started out. You obviously reflect on your role quite a lot. So it would be interesting if you could just sum up what you think the role of a journalist today is, particularly one like yourself, who's reporting on aspects of civic society and international politics and conflict. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when I started out, you know, social media weren't as big as today. And so traditional media were still, you know, seen as the main sources of news, the main providers of information. Today, this has changed a lot. There's a lot of citizen journalism going around. Some of it is actually very good. And it allows us to have, you know, information more quickly. But then it's also extremely dangerous because the problem of fake news going around. So people on purpose or not broadcast stories or information that they've heard of that might not have been confirmed or who actually, you know, want to spread fake information for their own political interests or other interests. And so it's made things much more messy. And so for me, the importance of actual trained journalists today is that they are trained to do their job. They're able to cross sources. They're able to verify information because they know how to do that. They might have the correct contacts and they have the the background and the training to do so. And so for me, traditional news outlets may not always be the first ones to break a story because they don't necessarily have the reporter on the ground at that specific time. They're not always able to be the quickest anymore. And that's especially true for press agencies I worked for, for a few years for Agence France Presse, the French press agency, and, and we had that conversation a lot where historically press agencies were supposed to be the first ones to break stories and then other media would pick up on those stories. Today, it's not as true as it may have been, but the importance of those press agencies and of media, traditional media in general, is that they should be regarded as trustworthy, much more than you know any other person who may claim to be a journalist or a purveyor of news on the internet and who might have some information, but who might not be able to, to cross-check it or, um, or, or to verify its origin. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to the impact that social media has had, you know, in in different parts of the world as we carry on talking today. And also this sort of issue of the training that's fundamental to good journalism, which I know is very, very important to the Institute for War and Peace reporting. So that brings me on to Noor, in fact. Noor, can you tell us a little bit about your own route into journalism? How did you start out and what's motivated you to keep working in this area? Well, as you said in the beginning, so I joined uh, the Institute for Water Peace Reporting, IWPR, as a translator. So I had no intention of working uh, in the journalism or uh, as a journalist, uh, but of course working as uh, at, for IWPR as a translator allowed me to work with, uh, you know, the journalism trainers we had, like I'd ever had from different countries, and that allowed me to work with uh, African journalists, you know, as you also know, and sure like your listeners also know, like Idaho has been focused on training African journalists. So like working as a translator allowed me to work directly with the African people, uh, you know, with the international journalists, the trainers and the African journalists. And that's how I started, you know, like uh, the route, you know, like working with the journalists and as a journalist. So, uh, but I began as a translator and that helped me 
and motivated me to work as a journalist given the situation in my country uh, in Afghanistan. So, you know, like af after joining IWF in 2005, well, I was only around 21 or 22 years old. And that was, I think, one of my, uh, my, my first jobs with IWPR. And that's how I started learning from uh, different colleagues, the international trainers, the Afghan journalists and the Afghan people, and then learning by experience of working directly with these uh, journalists as well as and then, of course, like a diploma in journalism. Uh, later on, so because I was so motivated, and I because working for the, the media organization, what I was promoted to head IWPR in Afghanistan, um, that's how my journey began. So you got into it in a slightly sort of lateral way, but you saw the importance of it, learned a lot from experience and, and did some training. And as you say, ended up being the country director for IWPR in Afghanistan. A few weeks back, we had the founder of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, Anthony Borden, on the podcast. So some listeners will know a little bit about the organization already. But for those listeners who don't know very much about IWPR, can you give us just a quick overview of, of what it does, but also why? Why does good journalism matter, particularly in conflict zones? So the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, or IWPR, it gave a voice to people uh, at the front lines of conflict and transition to help them drive change. IWPR supports local reporters, citizen journalists, and civil society activists in uh, more than 30 countries in conflict, crisis, and transition around the world. So uh, in Afghanistan, IWPR has been working there since uh, 2002, where it has created like independent entities in major urban centers uh, around the country. So uh, it launched programming in uh, 2002 in Afghanistan, uh, soon after the collapse of the Taliban regime. It uh, established the first news agency called Pajwak, which uh, remains the most reliable and re recognized and sustainable independent news agency in Afghanistan almost 19 years later. So uh, our work in Afghanistan is focused on strengthening in-depth reporting in order to encourage constructive public debate and critical thinking. We have had a robust, diversified media program in Afghanistan since 2002 and has trained hundreds of journalists, including a significant number of women. So many of IWS alumni continue to work as journalists, editors, and producers in print, radio, and TV outlets across the country up until the fall of the Afghan government in August. Yeah. That's a great overview. Thank you. And we'll dig more into that a bit later in the conversation. Margot, if I can come back to you, you worked in Sudan, Kenya, Central African Republic, Cyprus, covering elections, revolutions, conflicts of various sorts, and some of the ripple effects of conflict. Can you tell us a bit about the challenges that you've faced as a reporter in conflict zones, and also what you've learned about how conflict and journalism affect each other? I think first, as a foreign reporter, I often find that it's extremely important to remember what you look like to the people you're meeting, what you project, and what you might represent. A lot of the conflicts that I covered, for example, were very much infused with the colonial past. And so as a French person, I'm French and Canadian, but if I was perceived as French, uh, this often came into play, either because the French army was present in the country or because of the colonial heritage and how that may have affected certain grievances that played into the conflict, et cetera, et cetera. So for one, I always try to remember 
whenever I'm meeting someone, interviewing someone, or just even walking in the street, what I project. And that kind of modifies the way that I might say certain things, or I kind of remember why certain people might say certain things to me and the types of questions that I should ask and how I should ask them. So that's one thing. And then also as a foreign reporter, I do believe that we're quite privileged uh, in the sense that we have the freedom and the luxury to have a foreign passport. And so we are able to leave the country whenever local journalists don't have that freedom. And so when they do reporting or they do an investigation, they put themselves in danger and they don't always have the luxury to leave, but they also put their loved ones in danger. This is true today in Afghanistan. It was true before the Taliban took over again. Also, there were a number of criminal gangs and and armed groups uh, that could retaliate and indeed the government, members of the government that could retaliate against journalists or their families if they made reports that they weren't terribly happy with, things like that. So as a foreign reporter, obviously, sometimes, you know, there, there are certain risks that are very particular to foreign reporters. I think of, you know, risks of kidnapping, etc., especially in conflict zones uh, where you have kind of a situation of a, a free for all with a lot of criminality, etc. But a lot of the risks, I believe, are faced by local journalists. About what you were asking about how conflict and journalism affect each other, I think that when there is an open conflict, journalism is always one of the first things to be impacted. It's always one of the institutions of civil society that is most impacted. You can have a lot of fake news going around. Journalists see their freedoms restricted. There are a lot of people kind of posing as journalists and that are partial to one party or another. You also have trained journalists uh, who can't really do their job like they would like to do it because they face certain threats. And so it's always kind of a a tricky situation where I, I often find that I and all of my foreign colleagues need to work alongside local producers or or sometimes it's called fixers or even just translators to help us go around in the field, especially in countries where we don't speak the language fluently. But often these people are actually journalists themselves. And that has always kind of posed a problem to me because sometimes or a lot of the times the media don't really mentioned those journalists, you know, because they didn't write the story or they didn't actually film the report or they didn't, you know, think up the story or construct it, but indeed they were crucial in actually making it in the field. And I, I do believe that these people, these trained journalists should be mentioned much more and they should be given much more credit because often the reason why they are local producers or fixers is because they can't always, you know, spend 100% of their time working as journalists themselves. It's, it's too tricky and too dangerous. And also it's not financially viable because in a lot of conflict zones, the economy is dire. And so journalists can't, you know, really make a living out of journalism. And so a lot of, you know, people that I I worked with were still working as journalists, but they had to actually work as translators or or local field producers for foreign media organizations in order to actually make ends meet. So you're pulling out lots of important things there, the various impacts that conflict can have on journalism, but also this extraordinary complex relationship between local and foreign journalists, big differences in the levels of risk that foreign and local journalists expose themselves to, but that kind of symbiotic relationship where foreign journalism is very, very difficult to do without local input. Nor, I think this might be a good moment to come back to you. 
Margot's talked a little bit about the impact that conflict can have on journalism and how it can shut it down, how it can limit it. But there are impacts the other way as well, in that journalism can impact on conflict and indeed conflict resolution. So this might be a good moment to ask you about one half and a major, really important half of what the IWPR does, which is peace reporting. I think lots of us are very familiar with the concept of war reporting. And there's been, you know, very, very long tradition of dispatches from the front line with war reporters keeping the wider public up to date with details of fighting casualties, impact on civilians and so on. Obviously, war reporting is a much broader phenomenon than that. And Margot's work we'll talk about in a bit actually has very little to say about actual fighting in some ways. But in general, we probably have quite a clear idea of what war reporting involves and a much clearer idea of what that is compared to peace reporting. So could you help us get our heads around peace reporting a bit? How does it relate to war reporting and and why does peace reporting matter? Thank you. So like as uh, the name suggests, it is a a form of journalism uh, which is focused on exploring the root causes of conflict. Over the past 20 years, like Afghan journalists have mainly focused on covering the conflicts and violence. um, And we felt that there was a need Uh, to have journalists or to train journalists in peace reporting so they can play a role uh, in promoting peace and reconciliation uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, we did try that as a pilot or parts of some of our programs and projects in Afghanistan, and I think that worked perfectly fine. And uh, that is a need uh, for the Afghan media and the journalists to play a a role in promoting peace and uh, reconciliation in Afghanistan, but I'm not aware of kind of work that IDP has been doing in, in, in other countries in Afghanistan. We did try that a little bit and that worked fine. And I think that is, this is a perfect moment uh, to focus more on that. While we can keep, you know, like you said, the conflict reporting or war reporting, and I think that's also equally important. But in the meantime, we can also have a focus on peace reporting, which has not been Uh, the focus of uh, journalism or the kind of journalism work that has been happening in Afghanistan uh, over the past 20 years. Absolutely. I'm sure we will come back to some of that. But yes, so often a sort of a knee-jerk response to a a conflict zone is to focus on the conflict side of things. But as you say, journalism that uncovers the root causes, that uncovers all the sort of the ripple effects, can actually end up promoting conflict resolution in really important ways. Margot, I think that brings us neatly back. A lot of your journalism hasn't focused on war per se, on fighting, on actual conflict, but on the sort of wider social, cultural and political issues which are all impacted by, or in some cases, the drivers of conflict. So where would you say your own journalism fits on the spectrum between war and peace reporting, or are those categories not really helpful? That's a great question, actually. And, you know, I don't don't really like the term uh, war reporter. Uh, To me, it kind of makes a journalist sound like uh, a bit of a vulture looking for any open conflict to cover any war, almost as if, you know, war itself were a subject the journalist would be or should be looking forward to report on. Um, I don't look forward to reporting on active conflict. Um, It's quite a horrible thing, and it's not something I desperately always try to cover. I have focused a lot on conflict in that I academically focused on paramilitary groups um, quite a lot. It's something I've researched for years. And so it's something that I do try to cover in the different places that I go to work. But I'm also uh, very interested in the many other ways, as you mentioned, that war impacts society. And so, uh, and there are many ways to illustrate this. 
uh, you have artists, uh, resistant bands and censorship. You have sportsmen and sportswomen defying social norms and expectations or overcoming material difficulties linked to the conflict in order to practice their sports. You have um, in, in Afghanistan, I covered antiquities smuggling, which was something a really fascinating topic to cover that hadn't really been covered much before because of the violence and the open conflict going on in several provinces of Afghanistan, archaeologists couldn't access places that they would have wanted to work in. And so because archaeologists and researchers, Afghan or foreign, couldn't actually access those areas, uh, you had people in those areas actually excavating themselves. And then there was this whole smuggling operation going on that was... um, Um, that involved uh, either, you know, the Taliban or armed groups or criminal groups, but also just local leaders or villagers who, you know, were trying to make money however they could. And so it was something extremely interesting to cover because it allowed to talk about the conflict that was going on, the different actors in that conflict, how that impacted people economically, and so how they had to resort to, you know, digging the earth and then selling stuff uh, to, to survive. It allowed to look at the different smuggling routes um, with Iran, with Pakistan. Um, It allowed to look at uh, the topic of corruption that went all the way up the hierarchy in the former Afghan government. And so through that story of antiquities uh, smuggling, I was able to cover the conflict itself, but also the way in which it impacted um, the the people in Afghanistan and the neighboring countries. And there are many other stories that I did um, that allowed to talk about the conflict Conflict, but not simply by going uh, to cover, I don't know, uh, bombings, uh, which I also did, you know, but there are so many other ways to, to talk about these things in a little bit less direct way. Yeah, you're really drawing attention to a really important thing there. And you, you said at the start that you like telling stories, but the kinds of stories we tell have such an impact on how we visualize war and peace and and conflict generally you, this artifact smuggling story that you mentioned just one of your many pieces of work is a really classic example of how uh, um, it gets us to look at the conflict in much more depth it gets us to look at the ripple effects um, much more broadly I find it a particularly fascinating story actually to dig into because I'm an ancient historian by training and you know one of the things that let's say an invading Roman force would do would be to plunder a temple so there's a very sort of direct connection between plunder taking a culture's goods uh, value and and the military forces involved and the story that you're telling is a sort of it's a very different kind of kind of plundering that's plundering by necessity that's driven perhaps by economic deprivation facilitated of course by wider conflict and, and in some cases perhaps persecuted by prosecuted by by people directly involved but not always so it's it's a great example of this sort of broadening of our habits of visualizing a conflict one thing that I really tried to do uh, in, you know, in my reporting in Afghanistan, and that others have tried to do as well. I'm not, I'm not alone. In that um, is to try to defy some representations of what was going on in that conflict-ridden society. And so, for example, uh, there are a lot of stories about uh, women in Afghanistan, for instance, being uh, oppressed, etc., which is true. I mean, the, the situation of women is extremely dire, and there's a lot to say about that. But there are ways to tell that story without always victimizing the women. There are a lot of extremely strong women in Afghanistan, not just among the elites, actually, but also among just 
normal women that nobody really knows about and that don't really make the news all the time. And, and you know, women who are resisting in their own little ways, women who try to defy norms, who try to defy expectations, who, you know, try to live their life um, as, as, as best as they can, uh, despite those restrictions. And I really think it's important to, um, you know, to tackle that that topic of discrimination against women, you know, women's rights, etc., not just by, you know, detailing how horrible the situation is, but also by showing how certain women, uh, and indeed many women, try to kind of extract themselves from that situation and are trying to change things at any level. It can be a very local level. It can be at the level of their family, uh, or it can be on a very, you know, on a much larger level for the women who have had the chance to go into politics and to get an education and to, um, you know, maybe get the chance to advocate for women's rights on an international platform. There are so many stories uh, to tell. You mentioned the women's uh, BMX team. It was a mixed team. So it was girls and boys, men and women together you know, riding BMX and, and doing sports together. There are so many other stories like that as well that we can tell to talk about the conflict, to talk about the situation of women, to talk about, you know, gender roles and how the conflict and the economic situation may impact that, how tradition may impact that, but not just by tackling the story in a in always negative way or in a victimizing way for women. So lots of key phrases are really coming out there. Your interest in defying these habits of representation, habits of storytelling that pigeonhole, that stereotype and reinforce certain ways of looking. And you're really pulling out the differences between hard news, breaking news, that's potentially quite sensationalist, but potentially very narrow in so far as it focuses mm-hmm. on big events, sort of seismic moments, but out of context. And the, the kind of reporting that you've been more interested in has been very much about contextualizing, as I understand it, helping us look at the wider context, the interrelationship between conflict and the economy and women's rights and so on. And all of this obviously tunes in very well with what the IWPR is interested in as well. So, Noor, that brings me back to you. You've given us a bit of an introduction to how IWPR got involved in Afghanistan back in 2002 and some of the things that IWPR has tried to do in terms of training women alongside men, training hundreds of journalists. And we'll talk a bit more about that training, I think, in a while. But I wonder if you could start off actually by telling us a little bit about what the media scene in Afghanistan was like before 2001-2002, before the fall of the Taliban back then. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what the media scene in Afghanistan was like prior to 2001 and how it has developed since then? Sure. So the emergence of vibrant media sector is widely considered to be one of the success stories of Afghanistan's recent history. During the period of the Taliban control in the uh, 1990s, television was banned and Sharia Tukak or Sharia Voice was the only legal broadcaster. Today, there are like dozens of TV networks and more than 117. These are the figures before the fall of Afghanistan again to the Taliban. 170 FM radio stations, most of which uh, are privately owned, while the internet and mobile communications continues to expand. So during the Taliban regime, there was just only that one radio station, but things changed over the past uh, 20 years. And alone, IWPR, like over the past 20 years, we trained like more than a thousand 
Afghan journalists, uh, as you said, like both, and as I said earlier as well, uh, both men and women, we established like a network of uh, journalists across the country, you know, over the past 20 years. And in addition to supporting and working with Afghan journalists, you know, from from different provinces uh, across the country, we also supported the production of a national journalism curriculum for Afghan journalism schools and establish a network of media centers uh, around the country. So this is just an example of how Afghanistan looked like uh, in the 1990s under the Taliban control and what happened over the past 20 years. So this is just the kind of work that we alone did over the past 20 years. And there were like many other organizations in Afghanistan that played uh, a key role in supporting a vibrant media sector in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite extraordinary to think about going from the sort of one official broadcaster to hundreds of TV and, and radio channels. Obviously, IWPR has done incredibly important work in building networks, not just training individuals, but building networks of journalists and, and really developing training programs that are sustainable and continue to fuel this expansion of the media scene. I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit more about the relationship between local and international journalism in Afghanistan. You mentioned some of the TV channels for example are privately owned be interesting to know who they're owned by and and perhaps what forces are exerting their pressure on some of that but also just more generally to find out a little bit more about some of the international funding that's come in and how that's worked with local trends and local developments on the ground well uh, the things i just mentioned about like earlier this would have not been possible without the support from the international community so like the international community the international donors they did play a key role uh, in supporting a vibrant media in Afghanistan, media sector. So, uh, and of course, you know, like when uh, the Taliban regime was collapsed, uh, even like the warlords, they also realized there is no time to fight, so we can fight through, through the media. So they also established their own TV stations and radios, and uh, these are in addition to some of other media outlets, which were established by, uh, with support from the international community. And of course, the support of the Afghan journalists. And now we have like a, a cadre of professional, you know, like we left behind a cadre of professional journalists in Afghanistan. That was all made possible with support from the international community. So we, I think we'll come back to the work of IWPR and, and local journalists in particular in a minute. But Margot, talking of international media a bit, it would just be great to get your perspective on this. You've already mentioned a little bit about your experiences as a foreign journalist rather than a local journalist. But you've worked for both Anglophone and Francophone media organisations. I wonder if you have observed any differences in their coverage of Afghanistan over the last few years and months. And and more generally, it'd be interesting to hear your view on how the international media has encouraged the wider world to visualise Afghanistan and, and the years of conflict that it's faced. Well, actually, it's a bit funny because, well, in Afghanistan, I've mostly worked for Francophone media outlets. I've worked in English as well for France 24 as their Anglophone correspondent as well as Francophone. But generally, I, I mostly worked in French and for Francophone outlets. And it's quite funny because since France hasn't had troops fighting in Afghanistan in many years, and Afghanistan is not always in the headlines in France, that the vision that many editors uh, have of Afghanistan, or even that a lot of French people have of Afghanistan is quite frozen in time. There's this big idealization of Commander Massoud, who was a commander during the Civil War, who led the Northern Alliance, and he was very close to the French. And so there's this whole heritage. And then uh, when French troops were here, there were a couple of 
incidents that became very famous in France, either because uh, we lost uh, a lot of soldiers or because they were just very much covered in the press. And so today, now that France is no longer as present in Afghanistan, today we don't even have you know, a diplomatic representation in the country anymore uh, since the Taliban took over. Afghanistan is maybe a little bit less in the headlines and also the way that people think of it is still kind of stuck in time. And so for instance, when uh, Commander Massoud's son created his own movement years back and then tried to lead a resistance in Panjshir, you know, the French media were going nuts and they were always asking me about, you know, every time Masood's son did or said something, I had to cover it, which I found wasn't always extremely legitimate in terms of, you know, newsworthiness. And then there are certain areas in Afghanistan that resonate more with French people. I think of the Kapisa region, for example, where the French soldiers were very present years back. And so there are these elements where I'm sometimes asked for stories in relation to France's relationship with Afghanistan. But luckily, I find that editors in general and media outlets are very open. And I I always have very open discussions with my editors, and they're always ready to hear about new perspectives, and they're ready to defy maybe some preconceived notions of how the situation is today. So usually I was able to work as I wanted, but it was quite interesting to see how countries own history with Afghanistan and their own experiences, military and otherwise, with Afghanistan kind of infused the way that they imagined the coverage of the situation today. That's a really fascinating insight there. Um, and, and it doesn't come as a surprise, of course, but you know, a fascinating insight that the default bias of you know, a country's media is so bound up with their own history, much more so than bound up with what's actually going on on the ground in the country in question that might be being reported on. But it's good to hear that there's that openness as well to these, these new perspectives. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we've had various people on the podcast talking about Afghanistan in the past, and this has been a kind of an ongoing source of tension, the fact that the international media come with their own kind of preconceived stories about or preconceived mm-hmm. habits of visualizing the conflict which mm-hmm. have a, a somewhat tenuous relationship sometimes with what people on the ground have experienced and the stories that Afghan journalists would themselves like to tell so mm-hmm. Noor I wonder if that's a good moment to bring you back in obviously the IWPR believes really strongly in training local journalists to provide a different perspective from external international media and I wonder if you can just tell us, you know, maybe with some examples of stories that you've seen covered in Afghanistan, of what difference that local um, perspective makes, what difference the grassroots journalism can make to people's understanding and habits of visualizing things. While I admire the great work the international journalists and correspondents that have been doing in Afghanistan, like uh, Margot and others, what we notice over the past 20 years, and I think it uh, was sometimes very difficult for the international journalists and correspondents to travel to areas for security reasons, uh, which were controlled by the Taliban or even in the urban centers, uh, like uh, we were noticing, like most of the international journalists were embedded with the foreign military. So we felt like they were unable to reflect the realities on the ground. And that was the time for Idabur to chime in and we worked with local journalists uh, to reflect the realities on the ground. And a good example could be uh, from Helmand province. So where uh, we worked extensively uh, in the province where we tra- trained local journalists and, and established a media center, which was later on turned into a journalist union. Uh, so I won't go like into the difficulties and problems uh, of 
finding journalists or even people to train as journalists in that province, but we succeeded in training local journalists and had them report from some of the areas which were controlled by the Taliban, or they were completely ignored by the international community and the central government in Afghanistan. Uh, for example, Musakala is a, a large district in the southern Helmand province, where our journalists, you know, or the journalists that we train in that province, travel to that district and report from that. So that district, which was a huge district, was abandoned by the international community the former Afghan government for years because nobody knew what was really happening from that district. So we trained journalists and they were the ones who could go to that district and uh, report on what was happening in that uh, area. And that, of course, uh, uh, led to some changes. Of course, you know, more attention was paid to that district by the international community and the Afghan government. More support was given and they had to go there. And so this was just one example of how local journalists, the role they played. And on the other hand, like a lot of Afghans that, you know, like in some of these areas, were not feeling comfortable in talking to the international journalists while they were with the military, with armed men, you know, like foreign military. So it was difficult for them or they felt uncomfortable talking to them. And that's when we felt like something was missing. Uh, and that was a gap that uh, we, through our work in Afghanistan, extent IDAPRO's work in the country, we tried to fill that gap. And I think we succeeded in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. You're drawing attention to these gaps, these blind spots and the valuable, very important work which the IWPR and other organisations do in helping get ordinary people's voices better heard and parts of the country or, you know, particular areas which haven't had enough attention. That very close relationship actually between storytelling and consequences, storytelling and impact. The more storytelling that comes out of a region, the more a government or an international community actually addresses some of the problems that people are facing. So there are real consequences of being ignored or having your voices heard. So we've talked a little bit about what individual journalists might be trying to do and might be trying to achieve and how they might envision their role in a conflict zone. Nor your answer there has just got us thinking a little bit about how other people are affected by that journalism. So I wonder if we could think a bit more about that. Margot, I know you've thought a lot and experimented quite a lot with different forms of reporting, different formats, trying to think about how far your stories can reach, what readers and consumers want. So you've been doing some documentary work as well as short form and long form articles, working on a podcast. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. Who can you reach with documentaries, for example, that you can't reach with a long form article? And what different impacts do these different formats have on how people understand and visualise what's going on in very complex conflict zones? Yes, indeed. That's actually the main reason why I went back to freelancing. I was working with Agence France Presse before, the French press agency. And while I very much enjoyed that I kind of became a little bit too aware of, of the, the fact that the format was always kind of the same, you know, short uh, wire stories, sometimes accompanied by very short videos. And I, I kind of felt that this was very good for breaking news, for instance, but often that stories weren't told with enough nuance just for, you know, format reasons, because the, the articles, the stories had to fit a certain format. And that was often very frustrating, uh, you know, when you're in the field and you find a lot of things to say, or you've managed to reach a place that, you know, not many people have been able to reach. And you, you hear about all these people's stories that haven't been told before, and you can't really fit them in the story. 
or, you know, or, or things like that. And so that's the reason why I actually left my job to go to Afghanistan as a freelancer. I wanted to experiment more with different types of media and to see, you know, what was more adapted to, to one story or another, or to see whether I could tell the same story with, you know, different media and how that would, how that would work, how they could complement each other. And what I found was that for one, it's very difficult to do. <laughs> so when you're in the field and you're trying to do TV, radio and text and sometimes photo, it's actually pretty hard to do. But it's also extremely interesting because then once you actually produce the stories, you find that you tell them in very different ways. And so that's when I really, really found that it's almost necessary to tell the same stories sometimes uh, with, you know, through different media. Showing a documentary, for example, allows to show in a very detailed way, for example, the way that people live. If you're doing long form documentary, you can stay with certain characters for longer and you're, you're filming them so that people can see them. Your audience can actually see their faces, not just listen to their voices or or look at quotes, but they can actually see facial expressions. They can see, you know, the lighting, how their house is. They can see how they live. They can visualize much more easily what it's like to be a family living under Taliban rule in, I don't know, in Wardak, for example, uh, as I did recently. Or they can see what it's like living in the north of Afghanistan, what it's like to be a female teacher in a university, what it's like. It's a much more immediate approach. But then because you're doing long form, you don't as much have that that limitation in terms of formats. You can stay with your characters longer and actually create some kind of more intimate relationship with the audience who often hasn't actually been to the country. So that I very much like. With text and radio, what I prefer is that you don't have all the technical limitations that you have with TV. I find that, especially as a foreigner, but I think that works for anyone, when you go in the field with a video camera, even if you try to bring very light gear, you still have gear and it's still very apparent. And you're already, before you start speaking to people, you have this kind of um, barrier between you and them, and that's your equipment. You're already saying, I'm a journalist, this is my equipment, I will be filming, you are on the other side of this, and this is for a media story. So it's all kind of in the open, and it already creates the more formal atmosphere. You can't always start interviews um, as fluidly, you need to set up, you need to make sure that the lighting is okay. And that often is quite frustrating for me because I actually just like sometimes just meeting a random person and speaking to them. And in the end, you know, talking about them in my story because they were super interesting and had a very interesting outlook without actually setting up an interview, you know? So what I really like with the text format and radio to some extent is that you're much less visible as a journalist and you're more of a human being speaking to an other human being. The interviews can be longer, it's more fluid, it's more human. And I often find myself just interviewing, but not really interviewing, just having conversations with people in a much more natural way. And often I find that produces the best stories and the most interesting stories because people will feel more at ease. They will feel freer to speak often in places, either in conflict zones or in dictatorship situations where people might not want to be seen with a foreign journalist, then that's more useful because you can meet people in a much more discreet manner. So yeah, that's why press is my favorite medium. But I also do uh, radio and TV because I think they all bring something else. Uh, with radio, I didn't really talk much about radio, but I do love radio as well because it's kind of an in-between. You have that immediacy that I was talking about with 
TV where people can actually hear sounds and you can be very creative with sound. You can have ambient sound of that's going on in a village, animals, whatever, babies crying. You can, you know, really create an atmosphere and on top of the interviews, but then you don't have the huge gear that you would have with TV. So you're able to produce that sense of immediacy and that and make the stories lively and relatable to an audience, but you don't have all that hectic setting up process that you would have with TV. So it comes back to this thing that the Visualising Wall project is really interested in, the relationship between different forms of storytelling and different ways of visualising the world that's being told in a story. So you've drawn attention to some of the barriers, but also some of the um, opportunities, particularly interested in what you said about the way in which TV and to a lesser extent radio can actually build relationships between the subject and the audience. But that gets me wondering a little bit about what different kind of audiences you can reach with different formats. As we all know by now, very few people buy newspapers anymore and people read the news online much more, but then there are paywalls and not everyone is willing to pay to read the news anymore as they would have bought an actual newspaper yesterday. Today, because you're reading news online, you kind of have more the impression that it should be free, that it should be accessible like everything else that's online. And so not as many people are willing to actually physically buy their newspaper, their article. And so what I found was that sometimes I would put so much heart into a story and I would spend a lot of time uh, writing it or I would go to, to you know, great extents to report on it. It would take days. And in the end, not as many people would read it unless they were actually interested in Afghanistan or avid readers of news in the first place. What I found with, for example, documentary filmmaking or, or even TV news is that you reach a much wider audience. People are more ready to watch a documentary or to watch TV news stories because, again, it's more immediate. It asks for a little bit less effort. It's readily available either on YouTube or on websites or on the TV. And also there is that immediacy that I was talking about where you don't actually need to make the effort to read and to buy the article and then read it, uh, especially if it's long and you don't have a lot of time. You can actually, you know, sit back in your couch and decide that you'll watch a documentary. And so I find that often when I made documentaries or TV stories, they were much more picked up, even when I found that they were less good than my article versions. <laughs> and that was a little bit frustrating, but then it taught me a lot about about how people respond to stories and to characters and to ways that you tell them a story. And it's even if you have the impression that you're saying something super interesting, if you're not saying in an interesting way, then people won't pick up on it. Or if you're not using the correct medium and you know that not as many people will read it, then it, you're kind of screaming into the void, aren't you? So yeah. it's kind of this dual love-hate relationship I have with journalism where on one hand, it allows me to very freely go to different places and report on stories. But on the other hand, I have to always remind myself that it's not just the story that's important. It's also the way that you tell it. And sometimes you have to be quite savvy in the way that you choose the medium yeah. that you're going to tell it through. Yeah, so narrative techniques and formats and formulae really do sometimes control the shape of the story as it comes out and some of that is very much driven by consumer taste and not by the content of the story or indeed the journalists interests and in what they think is important so as you say it's a very very complex somewhat tense relationship sometimes it's absolutely what the visualizing more projects really interested in all these sort of drivers that make some stories have more impact than others nor on this subject it would be interesting 
interesting to know a little bit more about what kind of training IWPR offers in different media formats. And also, you've already touched on the sort of the advent of social media in Afghanistan and the way in which that can be leveraged for better or worse. Has that impacted on the kind of training which IWPR has delivered? And are some media formats defaulted to more by journalists on the ground than others? That's a very good question. So while for the international audience, like uh, documentary videos could be more important in visualizing the everyday life of the Afghan people or the hardship that they have been going through, but uh, specifically for the Afghan audience, particularly those in remote areas, radio is the most trusted medium due to a higher electricity rate and a lack of access to electricity particularly in those uh, rural areas. So, and that's what IWR has also been doing in Afghanistan. So we have been training journalists in, in the radio reporting, writing feature reports, and of course, in-depth reporting. So since we had like a mixture for the IWPR, like reporting, we have had a mixture of the audience. So the Afghan people, as well as the international community. And so for that reason, we had our reportings, like the feature reports, the in-depth reporting, the text more mainly in three languages, you know, Pashto, Dari, and English. So, of course, the English was for the international community to tell them what was really happening, to inform them on the uh, ground realities. While for the local audience, like in rural areas, radio, uh, we were mainly focusing on the radio. So we also trained like uh, radio journalists, uh, and we work with radios mainly, uh, and we partnered with, with radio stations across the country. So yeah, that's the most trusted medium, as I said earlier. So there is TV, as I said, like there have been like uh, more than a dozen of TV stations, but of course, you know, like uh, not everyone in Afghanistan has electricity to watch TV. So uh, again, like there have been, uh, you know, radio has been successful in that, and a lot of people are listening to radio but now of course we have with the increasing number of uh, internet users and a lot of Africans also have they've been using you know like Facebook and some social media platforms particularly like Facebook and they are also getting their uh, reports via you know like the social media platforms particularly like Facebook in rural areas so some of short clips on the Facebooks and they have been very successful because they do not have a very fast internet uh, to load heavy videos so uh, again, yeah, radio is the most trusted uh, medium and IDPR has been training African journalists in all of these mediums. Training in lots of different media, but also just thinking about that quite striking variety of audiences, trying to get local Afghan experiences communicated to a wider international community. But also you've got urban audiences within Afghanistan, you've got more rural communities where there's a lower literacy rate, as you say, and, and more challenges around um, connectivity and electricity and all of that driving the different formats that, that people use. You mentioned social media having some impact, and that reminds me to ask a question to Margot because I think you found yourself on the receiving end of some Taliban aggression actually through social media haven't you thanks to a documentary you produced uh, you know we, we've heard from another podcast guest who was talking a lot about the digital revolution and its impacts on the civil war in Syria and the way in which social media was being kind of harnessed and leveraged by all sorts of different players to promote their particular side of the conflict and it's clear that the, the Taliban have been harnessing social media up to a point can you tell us a little bit about your experience of that 
I mean, it wasn't too bad. It, what happened was that I made this documentary about life under Taliban control. And we had initially received a green light from the Taliban leadership that was in Doha or the, their communication unit uh, in Doha. Um, and then they revoked that at the last minute. And so the way that we went to report is that we got uh, a go ahead from a couple of local commanders. And so these commanders on the field didn't have the okay from their leadership. And so we made these reports. And in the report, there were a couple of instances where one commander, for instance, said that the first thing that the Taliban did when they took a village was to close the government run schools and then to replace them with madrasas and with their own curriculum. He was very open about it. There were a couple of other instances where uh, a commander or someone said something that kind of contravened the kind of communication campaign that the Taliban were taking much care to broadcast. And I mean, in the past years, the Taliban have taken great care to, you know, to broadcast a, a much more, I guess, likable or modernized image. And this was especially true in the context of their negotiations with the US. And so they weren't terribly happy when they saw, well, first that we had been to those areas without their official green light. And also that we'd gotten and broadcast these quotes from some commanders. And so what happened was that we got uh, myself and my co-producer some messages kind of atting us on Twitter saying that the report was fake. And the way that it started was that it was very small accounts with maybe four followers that were openly pro IEA, as they call them, Isla Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, so Taliban. Uh, they were pro-Taliban accounts um, with little emojis that went in that sense. And uh, they said in their bios that they were in favor of Taliban, et cetera. And they, you know, they were either trolls or, I don't know, fake accounts or perhaps even some real people, but that, you know, weren't making it a secret that they were pro-Taliban. And so saying that it was fake and that the Taliban weren't like that. And so I wasn't terribly worried at first because these accounts were obviously not very influential at all and they supported the Taliban, but then their tweets got picked up. And so there was this thing going around about, I don't know, that the commanders not saying these things or the report like being fake and stuff. And that to me, it was pretty terrifying because I'm not big about social media. <laughs> you know, I don't go on Twitter rants. I don't go around giving my opinion that much, even if I've been, you know, working in Afghanistan and living in Afghanistan for a while, I don't consider myself an expert. And so I don't go around, you know, tweeting all the time or anything. And I'm quite old school. And so the fact that this Twitter storm happened and that these tweets got picked up by much more influential accounts that pretty much terrified me and so I had to go back even though I had already done it but I had to show that I, I went back to double triple quadruple check the sources I checked with the Afghan security forces intelligence that the commander was indeed who he said he was and so I had to show and reprove that I had interviewed the correct people it's, I knew I had but it was just when you're caught in that storm you kind of have to prove your point I don't know, it just eventually died down. And it, the way that it died down is that I didn't take it publicly, but I wrote personally to a couple of the people who attacked me, especially those bigger accounts, first proving to them that they hadn't actually seen my report and they actually said they hadn't. And secondly, that they were you know, not even aware of where I had filmed it. They thought it was another province. And also kind of proving point by point that I was actually sure of what 
I had filmed and who I had filmed. And so in the end, they pretty much realized, I guess, that they were wrong and it all died down. But this all kind of taught me that if you're not a very influential Twitter user, and that's my case, you know, you can very easily get on the receiving end of a lot of attack and you're just some random freelance journalist with not a very big Twitter presence. If I hadn't actually gone to speak privately to those people to tell them, look, you don't even know what you're saying and you haven't even watched my report. I don't know what would have happened because they were much more influential on Twitter than I was. And so that was kind of a, a moment when I realized that in that world, it doesn't really matter who's right and who's wrong. You can be a trained journalist. You know, I've been a journalist for the past 10 years. I've studied armed conflict. I've studied Afghanistan. I've been living in the country, etc. And I've, I'm serious about double and triple checking my sources. And yet the fact that I am a trained journalist, if I'm attacked by a Twitter user with more followers and that is more influential in that world, then I can very easily be discredited and my work can be discredited. Luckily, it wasn't really my case because I, I mean, I'm not influential or, or famous or, or in any way. But if I had been more present on Twitter, I think it could have damaged my reputation a lot. Yeah, it is scary, isn't it, to think how you know a single Twitter user or a handful of Twitter users can discredit a journalist, but also change the story and mm-hmm. on the basis of no research or um, particular knowledge. So, Noor, we've heard a little bit about Margot from some of the intimidation that she as a foreign journalist has experienced. But of course, she earlier on in the conversation said that as a foreign journalist, she's she has always got an exit route. She's got a passport. And that's not true of local journalists. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what Afghan journalists are facing right now and what's happening more generally to the media in Afghanistan since the Taliban took power in August. Well, sure, Alice, I think this is a good question. Uh, so even prior to the Taliban's retakeover of Afghanistan in August this year, major challenges limited the media's ability to play its full and constructive role in Afghanistan. The number of professional journalists was extremely low, and the projects that existed suffered from the same concerns faced by the wider sector, like corruption, political control, censorship, biases towards women, and uh, inaccuracy. So these, of course, these challenge, you know, challenges that the African journalists increase with the fall of the African government. And, and even like uh, during the former government, we did lose colleagues to terrorist attacks. Yeah. In Afghanistan, we have had some of our colleagues who were forced to leave the country because of threats from different parties, you know. The government, the African government, the warlords, the Taliban, they were forced to leave because of the reporting they did. So challenges always existed in Afghanistan for Afghan journalists. And Afghanistan, unfortunately, has been one of the most difficult countries for journalists. But now, of course, the situation is very different. Now we have the Taliban are back. And of course, while the a lot of people are saying like the Taliban have changed and even the Taliban are not as they were like uh, 20 or 25 years back. But still, you know, like people still remember those memories and they uh, do not trust them. And that has created a chaotic situation among the journalists, the media, the people we have trained. In a lot of people, unfortunately, in a lot of journalists, you know, that we have trained, Uh, have either left the country or are seeking ways to leave the country. And this, unfortunately, has led to the media outlets that were created over the past 20 years to be run by journalists 
who were not very experienced, who were not very professional. And of course, that also uh, has created this gap, you know, like professional journalists were forced to leave the country. And now, like, the media sector in the country is uh, run by uh, journalists not very professional. And that is also creating problems for the journalists themselves in the country. So, yeah, the situation is very different now. Yeah, a challenging environment for many, many years, but as you say, really a hostile environment now and just underlining the importance of the training that arms that equips journalists to survive in hostile environments. Margaret, as you've already indicated, the Taliban is putting out a fair amount of news of its own with a sort of well-oiled media arm. How much are they trying to engage with foreign journalists? And if so, who? And what sorts of war stories and peace stories are they now trying to tell? Um, Well, it's actually very interesting because uh, the Taliban have been trying to create this notion for the past few years that they have changed. There was even this notion of Taliban 2.0 that was, you know, being picked up by some international analysts, etc., saying that they changed, that they had modernized, even to the Afghan people. I mean, the Taliban, ever since the beginning, they kind of pose as kind of a nationalistic movement, as the defenders of the Afghan people against foreign invaders and against the corrupt elite. And so what they're doing now is they're keeping up this communication campaign and they're trying to normalize as much as they can this extremely quick transition of power that happened. So, you know, on the 15th of August, they just came into Kabul and there, there was no battle and they just entered the capital city and sat in the presidential palace. Uh, and, you know, most of the Afghan elite and the, the members of the government had already fled or were in the process of fleeing. Uh, the president had fled. And so the transition was extremely quick. And so one way in which they tried to normalize it even more was by uh, using media and especially international media. So it's very important to remember that when they entered the presidential palace and did their first uh, quote-unquote press conference, uh, they actually brought an Al Jazeera team with them. And there were Al Jazeera images of these Taliban, these armed Taliban fighters sitting on the president's seat and in the president's office, then addressing the Afghan people, addressing the international community and immediately posing as new leaders of Kabul and the new leaders indeed of the country. And so, I mean, in my opinion, used that channel to pose themselves as the new legitimate rulers who held press conferences and who spoke to media. But this wasn't so much a press conference as it was a communication campaign, I would say. And then they allowed international media to come in the country. It's been quite difficult to access Afghanistan just because at first there were no commercial flights. So the way that I went in in August was uh, by land through Pakistan. And now there are a couple of flights that are happening, for example, from Pakistan, but it's quite difficult to get visas. There are issues with going in the country right now, but the Taliban themselves aren't restricting the work of international journalists as much as they are restricting the work of local journalists. They are doing it, you know, a little bit more now, but up to now, they were more focused on showing themselves to the world and showing themselves as the new leaders. And they wanted all those images of Taliban guarding banks, guarding offices, guarding, you know, office buildings. They wanted to show themselves as strong and as legitimate. And they wanted the world to see Kabul draped in Taliban flags all over the place. 
more and more the Taliban are trying to put in place their bureaucracy. So now we have to ask for authorizations, work permits. There is a whole process that has been put in place. We're still in that strange window where they took over control of Afghanistan, but they haven't yet completely settled all the bureaucracy. So, you know, there are a lot of question marks all over their place. The authorizations given to journalists kind of vary from week to week, uh, or they, they used to anyway. And so we're still kind of in that strange period where everything is not yet in place. So the Taliban right now, they're still catering to their image. They're still trying to maintain not just that image of, you know, the, the defenders of the Afghan people, but also an image of legitimate leadership. So in some ways that, you know, the bureaucracy is unsettled and therefore actually some of the storytelling is still unsettled. It remains to be seen exactly what stories of war and peace uh, the Taliban are going to be putting out there over the coming months. But it's really fascinating to hear you talking about, in a way, the way in which the Taliban in August got the breaking news press to do some of their work for them in terms of actually legitimizing them. It's an act of legitimization simply to hold a press conference and being the kind of power base that does that. Nor it would be really fascinating to get your insights on this too. You are obviously not in Afghanistan at the moment, but you've been observing from afar. And it'd just be interesting to hear how you think the Taliban have been managing the media. Uh, well, sure, I agree. Like there is no ideal situation for no one. The current situation in Afghanistan is not ideal uh, for the journalists, you know, like uh, civil society activists and ordinary Afghans. But I think it's too early. They have been in power for two months now. And I would suggest, you know, just give them some time and see, because there are a lot of changes with the Taliban today and the Taliban of 20 or 25 years back. Afghanistan has also changed significantly because the way the Afghanistan that the Taliban ruled in the 1990s is now very different. And I think the Taliban are or will need to adapt to a new Afghanistan. So I personally believe that the international community should engage with the Taliban because the strategy of not engaging with the Taliban, you know, like that did not work in the past. And unfortunately, we all paid the highest price for that. The Afghan paid the highest price and of course the international community and the 9-11, all those things, you know, happened. And so I would strongly suggest, yeah, like the international community should engage with the Taliban. And even the Taliban have also, based on my experience of working in Afghanistan for the past 20 years, the Taliban have also realized the power of the media. And that was why when we were working in Afghanistan, the Taliban were more media savvy than the Afghan government. Uh, you know, while Afghan government was receiving all the support, they had, you know, like the sharing information, rights and stuff like that. But the Taliban were still more media savvy. They wanted to have their say. And we have had a lot of examples of how they work with the journalists and they were very quick in responding. So they know the power of the media and I'm sure like that will be way for the media organizations to work. And of course, that's also something that we will be, uh, you know, either will be considering that is a way. And, and of course, like when we say engaging with the Taliban and of course uh, the international organizations, the uh, international community should engage and the media should also continue to play its role. So I'm, I'm sure like the current situation is not ideal for no one. So I think there are ways to engage uh, with the Taliban, and I think there is a need to engage with them. Uh, so the Afghan population is not punished. Yeah. So it's a period of transition. 
but engagement is something that's a matter of necessity, but also, as you see it, an opportunity to leverage the fact that the Taliban are very media savvy as a way of ensuring that there is an ongoing relationship and perhaps a sort of a growing relationship between Taliban and all sorts of different media organizations. And you've drawn attention there too, again, the, the sort of the vital role that organizations like IWPR play in ensuring that journalists are very professionally trained and able to secure their own safety and operate in safe ways. So would you say that you feel optimistic about the role that journalists can play and about, uh, you know, optimistic as you look towards peace reporting and journalism that might work towards conflict resolution in the coming months and years? Well, uh, I think now that the armed conflict and violence has ended, or in other words, it's not in the scale as it was like a few years back. Of course, there are security incidents here and there. And I think the media and the journalists can play a role in promoting reconciliation among Afghans. And even the Taliban themselves have realized, you know, they won't be able to rule by force. But of course, there are like different groups even within the Taliban themselves. Still, I think I think that is a need for uh, reconciliation among Afghans. And I think the media... Because the Afghans are also tired of wars and conflicts. And, and a good example was the Panjshir and the resistance in northern Afghanistan, northern Panjshir province, where people did not fight. But it was different uh, 20 years back where there was a resistance and you know, the Taliban were unable to make it to that province. So it shows that people are tired of uh, wars and conflicts. And a lot of different parties are also waiting to see because it's just a transition period and political figures are giving them some time. And, and I think we as journalists and I think the media organizations should also play their roles in promoting reconciliation among uh, different Afghan group and the Afghans themselves. Yeah. And it goes to the heart of that mission statement that you read out for the IWPR, driving positive change in places of conflict and transition. Yes. Margot, you've mentioned that you're heading back to Afghanistan to do some more reporting from there. So what kinds of stories are you hoping to cover this time around? And how do you now see your role in this changed world, in this transition period? The stories I would like to report on, I mean, there are very many. I think something that should definitely not be overlooked is the terrible economic situation in Afghanistan currently. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the Taliban takeover and that, what that means. But right now, um, the, the daily life of many Afghans revolves around that economic situation. The Taliban can't access the, the coffers of the central bank. There is no money going around in Afghanistan. So many businesses are collapsing. Many people aren't receiving salaries. There are, there are many people who used to work for the government or for NGOs that received funding from foreign organizations that can't work anymore or who work without receiving salaries. And that's a huge problem because often in Afghan families, there's one or two people that work, often men. And then for one person who loses his or her job or who doesn't receive a salary, it's a whole family that can't be fed and that can't live as it, it used to, to live. And it's, you know, it's a whole family who can't live in their house anymore because they can't pay for rent. So it has a whole bunch of ramifications that shouldn't be forgotten. And so that's one thing that I would really like to cover. And then there's also the topic of the Islamic State group, because even though the Taliban are now in power, they've uh, defeated foreign armies, uh, as they like to put it, and they now govern Afghanistan, or try to, there are still, you know, other armed groups in the country, and among which the Islamic State group, which continues to lead or at least to claim 
attacks, including in major urban centers. And this has been the case very recently. And so that's one thing I would like to look into, whether former Taliban members who aren't receiving the jobs that they thought they were going to receive after the victory, or whose situation is not as good as what they thought that it would be once they've reached Kabul, for instance, whether they're turning to other armed groups, whether they're defecting, and whether the Islamic State is using that opportunity to recruit, I'd like to look at how all this plays into, you know, power dynamics within the Taliban. There's a lot of things to cover, but the way that I would like to cover it, ideally, would be through stories of people. There have been a a lot of editorials, op-eds, analysis written about Afghanistan. A lot of it is very good, an excellent way to kind of try to comprehend what's happening in the country in a more analytical manner. But I think the best way to understand what's happening in Afghanistan today is to tell the stories of the people that all of this is actually happening to. And the only way to do this is to actually go on the ground and talk about, you know, what's happening to this family, to that family, what has happened in that village, how many people aren't receiving their salaries, what is the implication of this, how has the very bad economy impacted the lives of Taliban fighters, of civilians, how is this impacting the new government, and there are a lot of stories, I think, to tell about resistance also, about the way in which people, and especially women, try to resist the new laws that are being imposed on them, how they're trying to circumvent certain laws, how they're trying to keep studying if they're not allowed to study, how they're trying to um, keep promoting women's rights or their rights despite, you know, the risk of being arrested, the risk of being tortured. There's a lot to be said about the way in which Afghans are responding to the current situation. That's what I hope to do. So lots of people-led storytelling, and it's been a recurring theme of our conversation today, I think, just how much journalism is about different kinds of storytelling and the power of that storytelling to contextualise, to get us looking beyond the big events, the seismic moments, the, the denouement, and getting us thinking about the really wide ripple effects of conflict in all sorts of areas, as you say, the economic situation on ordinary people. Nor it would be good also to hear about your future plans. Are you planning to continue working in journalism? And if so, what do you want your focus to be? Uh, well, yeah, because we are going through this transition and this transition is, is impacted. Definitely, I will return and, and even IWPR. We are exploring different ways on how we can re-engage with Afghans, how we can go back into that country to play the important role that we played over the past 20 years in Afghanistan. So we are, as I said, like exploring different ways because we're going through a transition and the journalists that we trained and some of my former colleagues that we were counting on either left the country or leaving the country. I'm hearing like some are now based in the UK, some are in Mexico, some are in the United States. I think we do need, while we are exploring different ways of, you know, re-engaging with Afghans, I think we need time to see like who is where uh, and what resources we have, because the, the resources that we were counting on, the journalists we trained, the, our former colleagues, they are leaving the country. So yes, definitely I'll be returning to the field, but I think we need some time to see like how and when we can return and to continue the work that we have been doing in Afghanistan for the past uh, 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. So it's a case of lots of patience and reflection 
And as you say, you know, not counting on the resources that you've had in the past, but working your way through this new scenario and this probably very long period of transition. But it's great to hear that you have firm plans to go back to Afghanistan with IWPR and continue doing that very important work that's had such an impact over the last 20 years and doubtless has a huge impact still to come. Noor and Margot, you've given us some really fascinating insights today into the complex relationship between journalism and conflict and conflict resolution, the way in which journalism can really shape our views of war and indeed peace, but also help to engender conflict resolution, peace building and so on. So it's been really fantastic talking to you. I'm very grateful to you for the time you've taken today. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Thank you, Alice. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. Please do tune in again next week when we'll be staying with journalism, but focusing on conflict photography as an aspect of war and peace reporting. My guest will be award-winning photojournalist Peter van Achtmael, who has spent over two decades documenting the wars that the US has been involved in, particularly Iraq and Afghanistan. He's very interested in unpicking the dominant narratives about those wars and about military culture as well. And like my guests today, he's really keen to shine a light on less visible aspects, photographing some of the unseen drivers of conflict, as well as its many, many different impacts on ordinary people. His photography really is mind blowing. It has the potential to change how people visualize war very profoundly. So I hope you can join us for what promises to be another fascinating discussion. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening.